morning, church. It's good to be with you again. So this week, my son had fraud on his debit card, which makes him the fourth of the four of us that have dealt with that in the last couple of weeks. We have this little dance we do with our bank where expenses we have that are regular, like using our Walmart app for gas, get flagged and they call us, is this fraud? No. And then crazy expenses originating from another company, they let fly and we have to say, you know, this is probably fraud. And so we've been going through that. What makes David's case a little more difficult is he's off at college in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So he was very curious how we were going to make sure we got him a new debit card as quickly as possible. And thankfully, I was able to get one overnighted to him, but he had a a very intense interest in how we were going to navigate the distance to deal with this fraud. Fraud is rampant in our country. Nearly $9 billion of fraud will cost consumers this year in this country. $9 billion of fraud. But perhaps what's even more alarming is that religious fraud is rampant in this country. The result is the rise of a group we call the nuns. Not the ones with the habits, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. When they're surveyed about their religious affiliation, they circle none. No religious affiliation. And it's perhaps the most important story in religion today, according to Ryan Berg, a political science professor at Eastern Illinois University. He's authored a book called The Nuns. He says this group accounts for 30% of the American population, 30% who claim no religious affiliation, and that this is a trend that's probably been happening in surveys for at least the last 30 years. A growing increase in the number of people in our country who are not affiliated with religion. And if you unpack who those people are, the majority of them are not atheists and agnostics. They're not people who don't believe in God. The majority of those people are people who say they believe in God. They just no longer believe in the church. They've experienced some form of spiritual trauma, spiritual abuse that has led them out of faith communities, away from churches, to where they are no longer affiliated. And the majority of these people are 40 years old or younger. And so the people who still affiliate with church tend to be people in their 50s and 60s. And so there's a graying of the church in America. There's a decline of the church in America. And this steady decline is the result of religious fraud. of faith communities and faith leaders who say they follow Christ, who claim to be speaking for Christ, 
who claim to be doing the work of Jesus, but whose lives really don't reflect the heart and the mind of Christ. A good friend of mine was a church planner, a domestic church planner, and he wanted to plant churches in Uptown, which is the part of Dallas where a bunch of young professionals move in right after college. And he was going to plant house churches throughout Uptown, and so as he and his team moved to Uptown and they began to learn the community and make relationships, but they found a group who loved to go to this one certain bar in Uptown because they had board game nights. And they keep going to this group and realize that there's this whole subculture of board game aficionados who are very serious about their board games. And so they become a part of this board gaming community. And my buddy begins to ask folks, like, do you find anything like transcendent about this? Like, do, do you feel God in this at all? Do you experience God in any way in this community or in these rituals? And, and way over half the time, they did not answer that question, but rather they began to spew on him their religious trauma and their abuse that they've experienced and why they don't trust religion and the religious. And he realized that for him to do evangelism in that context in North America, it's not a context where most people have not heard the good news of Jesus. It's not that they don't know the story. It's that they've experienced it in a way that has come with trauma and abuse and a misrepresentation of the heart and values of God. And so he realized if I'm going to reach people and evangelize people in uptown Dallas, I have to do trauma-informed evangelism. And I have to help them have a safe place to work through the abuse they've gone through, work through their post-traumatic stress, and help them heal from that so that they're open again to following Christ. I have to take away the barrier that the church has become to following Jesus for them to trust that there might be other faith communities that they can trust to walk with them as followers of Christ. I think this is the work we have before us at this time, in this age, in this country. We have to deal with the damage that's been caused by religious fraud. And while that's the challenge of our age, it is not a new challenge. In fact, in the book of Philippians, Paul writes to a church that's a baby church. It's a very young church. He formed it. He knows the members of that church by name and remembers Lydia's baptism, the baptism of her household, 
the Philippian jailer's baptism, the baptism of his household, knows all the people that have come to be a part of that faith community. And yet from the day they came to Christ, they have been opposed by others who claim to follow Jesus. And they have had adversaries that are working against them. And so he speaks to this in the book of Philippians multiple times. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The ones who proclaim from goodwill proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I've been put here for defense of the gospel, but the others, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. Later on, he warns the Philippians, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears, their end is destruction. Their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. He describes these opponents, people who claim to be Christian and yet do so out of selfish ambition and earthly means, wanting to gain things here and now. They do so out of envy and rivalry. Well, this is a source of great anxiety and worry for the Philippian church. The religious fraud we see around us is a source of great anxiety and concern for us. And yet Paul says, let let me tell you a guaranteed way to protect yourself from fraud. There is guaranteed fraud protection if you will live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you'll remember he's in prison and that worries them too. But he says, Whether I come see you or I'm absent and just hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and in no way are frightened by those opposing you. Paul says, no matter what, whether I get out of jail or not, whether I come to see you or not, no matter what these religious frauds are doing, to damage and pervert the gospel of Jesus, you live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And you strive together side by side. You stand firm in one spirit and with one mind. And don't be afraid of those who oppose you. And then Paul goes on to describe this one mind that we're to have. It's the mind of Christ. That's where he gives the beautiful Christ hymn in Philippians 2 that we know so well. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped for his own benefit, but emptied himself 
becoming a servant, even to the point of death. You see, the language there is that Jesus is in very nature God as a divine being, as a part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is a very important person. Jesus could play the VIP power card at any point. He could have the best parking spot. He could jump to the first of the line no matter how long the reservations are at dinner. He could live in whatever gated community he wants. He could use his power and his place for his own benefit. But he never pulls the God card. He never says, do you know who I am? He empties himself and enters into our lives, into our pain, into our brokenness, into our shortcomings, and gives of himself consistently for us. The mind of Christ, the life of Christ, is one of downward mobility. Which is really countercultural in this country. The American dream is a dream of upward mobility, and the life of Christ moves in the opposite direction. And when people baptize the American dream with Christian language, they create religious fraud. So he says, church, you've got to have the mind of Christ. You've got to pursue a life of downward mobility. And then he gives other examples. Imitate me, brothers and sisters, and those like me that you observe who set an example like you have in us. Paul says, you can imitate me because I'm trying to imitate Christ. And then he goes on to talk about guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus. I hope to send Timothy to you. I hope to send Epaphroditus to you. These are people with real names, with real lives that the church can look to and say, if I imitate them, I will be imitating Christ. They are following Christ in the life of downward mobility. They are seeking to serve and love and to give of themselves fully. So love as I'm loving, Paul says. Or look to Timothy. Or look to Epaphroditus. You will be guaranteed fraud protection as a follower of Christ if you imitate those who imitate Christ. I got to tell you, the World Series win for the Rangers was a big deal at our house. And one of the reasons is because my daughter, from the time she was little bitty, got transfixed on Ranger games on the TV. And she would imitate every single thing the Rangers did. She loved Michael Young. And so however Michael Young was doing his batting gloves to get ready to hit, 
she would do that in front of the TV. And Michael Young would adjust his cup, and she would adjust her cup. And where I had to draw the line was Michael Young would spit, and she would spit in our living room floor. Okay, that's where we're going to have to stop this game. She watched, and she imitated. She wanted to do everything they did. And now she's 22, and we spent a lot of money over the last month for her to go to a DS game and a CS game. And did you know you can put World Series tickets on a payment plan? I did. But for her, it's this culmination, this identity she has. That's my team. Those are my people. This is my way of life. This country needs Christians who have the mind of Christ, who are on Christ's team and live Christ's way of life. I love this mantra you've embraced as a church about living differently because that really is the cure for the fraud that has damaged so many lives in the name of religion in this country. We will imitate those who imitate Jesus. Our witness will be intact. So look around and ask yourself, who seeks to give power away instead of take it for themselves? Who shares power instead of hoards it? They have the mind of Christ. Who seeks to serve others instead of always be served first themselves? Those people have the mind of Christ. Who endures suffering faithfully and with hope? Who enters in willingly to the suffering of others? Who comes running to those in pain when reality rears its ugly head? Those people have the mind of Christ. Who forgives and shows grace and lets others know their failures are never final. Those people have the mind of Christ. I remember we had a woman at our church where I preached. That by the time I was there, she was older. You could have easily just suspected she was one of the widows whose husband had died as a member of the church previously. But when you get to know her story, found out that she had been divorced for years. And in the first service, I said it was because her best friend and her husband had an affair. But as I got to thinking back, it was actually her sister and her husband.
And she had worked through that betrayal in such a way as to offer forgiveness and grace in such a way that she still had a relationship with her sister and her ex-husband and was still one of their caregivers as they aged. And so I thought, whoa, I got to find out more about this. And I asked her, like, how how did you get to a place where you still have a relationship with people who hurt you so deeply, betrayed you so deeply? She said, John, I'm going to be honest. My very first reaction was to get a shotgun and shoot them both. And the only reason I didn't is because I remembered what Jesus has taught us about forgiveness. And I realized it was time for me to put my faith into action. And it wasn't easy and it wasn't pretty and it's taken years for us to get where we are. But I just decided regardless of who they had turned out to be, I needed to be who I had claimed to be. And so as a follower of Jesus, I felt like I had to choose forgiveness and I had to choose grace. Imitate those who imitate Christ. And you can be guaranteed that our neighbors will see and hear and feel the good news of God's love in Jesus Christ. And that we will be protected from fraud. Let's stand together. Church, my prayer for you is that you will live into your call to live differently. And that in the words of Paul, you will live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that no matter what, you will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind, the mind of Christ, for the faith of the gospel, and in no way are frightened by those who oppose you. All God's people said, amen.